If you have your Bible, please open to the book of Habakkuk. Providentially, by God's perfect timing, we are in a book that is most relevant for this time. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one from the pew in front of you. It's our custom to preach through books of the Bible, as to work through a text and to explain what God has said and to apply that to our lives. And I don't mean just like taking a text and jumping off and saying whatever is on uh, my mind, but explaining the text. So you'll really get more out of it if you follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you don't use the pew one, just grab your phone. It's on page 540 in the pew Bible in front of you. I've been instructed that I've got to give you a little time to turn to a book such as Habakkuk. It's uh, the fourth book from the end in the Old Testament. So go to the New Testament, go backwards, four books, you'll be there. And while you're turning there, just maybe an explanation. You probably saw me taking videos and, and stuff like that and, and wondering, what are you doing? Well, we, we do support a, a church in, in Russia. And we need to be remembering them during this time um, to be a a evangelical Christian in Russia, a Baptist, is to be seen as a cult member. And um, Vladimir Putin is a Russian Orthodox uh, professor. And his government has, in the past, um, tried to do what they can to intimidate these type of believers. So, for instance, when we first start, helped them to start their church, and they're all Russians, the pastor's Russian, they're from there, um, what would be the equivalent of the KGB seized, just showed up to the pastor's work so, and stole his computer and all of the resources, the financial resources that we sent them. Uh, that was, you know, four years ago, but we need to remember that they're scared and um, depressed. This is what he said. We use an encrypted app to uh, communicate. He said, we're at a loss, depressed and scared, and we pray for peace. That's all we can do. And we have no idea if we will be able to get what you send us. That's our financial resources. So uh, please be remembering them. That's why I was taking video. I'm going to send them a video to encourage them. I may ask some of you that are members if I could just take a quick video of you just saying, hey, we, uh, we love you. You're brothers and sisters. And, you know, though we are, our nations may be enemies, we're allies in the gospel together. And that transcends national Borders. So I may ask some of you just to say a quick word, to say hi, and uh, to encourage them after the service. So by now, I'm sure you've made it to Habakkuk, right? Should have. Uh, page 540. So if you're there, please go ahead and stand, and I'll read. I will read Habakkuk's first lament and God's response. So I'll read beginning in verse 1, and I'll read all the way to verse 11. But today for the preaching... We're focusing on God's response. That's verses 5 through 11. This is what the Lord says to the church. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The Lord says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like eagles swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 I wonder this morning if you believe that. A statement of the profound sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over individual human hearts. The most powerful and influential people in the world kings and rulers, that God is sovereign over their heart and He turns their heart wherever He will. People that have the ability to alter the course of entire nations and even history itself, people who could affect the lives of millions or even billions of people. To think of such a thing that God is sovereign over people's hearts in that way is something that's utterly astounding. As it has vast implications for our understanding of the problem of evil and suffering. Or, rather, if you don't believe that, that God is sovereign over the king's heart, maybe you believe this is just colorful language. Perhaps that's you. This is just colorful language that's being used. And God really isn't in control of anything. Maybe you believe that today. Um, I don't know how you could have any comfort in a time such as this, believing that. And as we'll see, this is certainly not what we are taught in our passage this morning. This week, many around the world were utterly astounded that um, President Putin and the Russian army invaded the Ukraine. It seems he's emboldened by um, what is perceived by him to be uh, the weakness of our own nation. And perhaps he's right to a degree because our rulers seem to be more concerned about the next two-year plan and how to win the midterm elections and how to win the next presidency. We're playing the short-term game. And it appears for the past 20 years he's been focused in playing a 20- or 30-year uh, game. China's now been emboldened more than they were, and there's even rumors and that they're saber-rattling and may invade Taiwan. The world seems to be teetering, maybe, on the precipice of World War III. In fact, that's, if you turn on the news, that's what all the political pundits are talking about. They, you know, they, uh, they, shred, they, they go through their boards and their, how the, these different scenarios that could unfold and topple things like dominoes and drag us all into World War III. It's all on social media. That's trending on social media, World War III. And if that happens, no doubt every single person in this room will be impacted, including our children and our grandchildren. 
You may have seen the images and videos and been shocked or even perplexed. What is God doing right now in the world? Is He doing anything at all? Is He really going to let all of this play out right before our eyes? So you have this feeling of perplexity. And Habakkuk would have had that feeling times 10,000 after God responds to him in 5 through 11. When God responds to Habakkuk in 5 through 11, it leaves him completely astounded and dumbfounded, as we'll see next week. God's response to Habakkuk is utterly astounding, and we're going to go through it in 5 through 11. Now, remember the context that will help you to understand where we're at. Habakkuk has, he's a prophet of Judah, or the southern kingdom, after the nation split into two. The ten northern tribes have already been destroyed and carried away into captivity by the Assyrians, and only Judah and Benjamin remain. And things are going really bad in Judah. Judah has followed the northern tribes in their idolatry and paganism and immorality and injustice. And Habakkuk has been crying out to God for help. He's a prophet to this southern kingdom of Judah, a contemporary of Jeremiah. He's been crying out for help. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. He's crying out to God for help, wondering what God is doing. And he laments. This is a lament. If you remember, last week we saw the kind of two aspects of his lament. First, he laments God's silence. How long, O Lord, will I call out to you for help and you won't save? That's what he's saying. I've been lamenting to you the conditions that have been going on here. I've been coming over and over. and you're, Are you even listening? And this is a vital aspect, I think, that we have to supplement to our faith. We think we can't go to God with our frustrations Can you really go to God and say, why aren't you listening to me? And that's not doubt. That's an expression of faith. But also Habakkuk shows us another aspect of his lament. And that's the question, why? He asks God, why aren't you doing anything? It presupposes that God is sovereign. He could do something. The conditions don't have to be what they were. What's happened in my life didn't have to happen. You could have done something different. You didn't. So he's lamenting God's silence. He's lamenting God. Why is this happening? Why didn't you do something else? And rather than being doubt, these are important aspects because there'll come time. There will come times in your life. It's going to be guaranteed. Life's full of great times, and we should enjoy those great times and enjoy the grace that God gives us. But there's always coming dark times. In your life, we live in a fallen world. They're unavoidable. And when they come, right, you can either just leave the faith and abandon God, or you can do what Habakkuk did. You can lament, can lament to him, cry out to God, the only one who can help you, lament even his silence and even your questions as to why he's doing what he's doing. That's what he does. We began this series by asking this question. Could your faith survive something cataclysmic like terminal brain cancer? Could it survive the death of everyone in your family? Could your faith survive even the destruction of Western civilization as we know it? Or are you a fair-weather fan of Jesus? That's what I fear that many people are today here in America They love Christianity when everything is going well, right? They worship, everything's going well, they're a fair-weather fan. You know what that is. But when things get really bad, 
Uh, they either just abandon the faith completely or they reinvent their faith to something that's not biblical just so they can survive. Well, Habakkuk shows us what it is to have faith in troubled times. And that's kind of the overarching theme. This book is about faith. Faith in troubled times. So there's a lot we can learn from this great book. It's providential that we have arrived here. But Habakkuk has been crying out to God for the condition of his people. And the condition of his people are so, it's so bad. They're worshiping Baal at this time and sacrificing their own children to to pagan gods. And he's crying out about the conditions. And God's going to respond. And we see God's response in 5 through 11. And God's answer to Habakkuk is utterly astounding and dreadful. Things are about to get much, much worse before they get better. And this answer from God, it forces us to examine our own beliefs about the world, how God providentially governs the world, and it forces us to tackle really big questions that we don't often deal with, <clears throat> unfortunately, until they come. They should be dealt with beforehand so we can have this down before, but usually we don't until it comes, such as God's relationship with suffering and evil, questions about God keeping His promises, Is God really just if everything is so bad in the world? Does God even care what's going on? Is God in control of anything? What about evil and suffering? We've got to grapple with those like the prophet Habakkuk had to do. And the text forces us to do that. And what we see in God's answer to Habakkuk, as I said, is both astounding and it's absolutely dreadful. And that's our outline this morning if you're taking notes. First, we'll see God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is astounding. Then we'll see that God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is dreadful. So my purpose today is to help you see that God is sovereign over all peoples and nations, and God is even sovereign over evil. Not that He does evil, because He is good and perfect in all of His attributes and cannot sin, but God is even sovereign over evil and the evil actions of men. And God is good and just and uses the evil actions of men to bring about His good designs, the good of His people, His justice, and His grace in the world. So let's look today and see God's answer to Habakkuk's lament. We'll see that it's both astounding and it's dreadful. First, God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is astounding. Look at your passage this morning. God begins to speak. And when he begins to speak, he is speaking in the plural. Habakkuk is a singular prophet, but God answers him as he is speaking to the whole nation. And it is, verse 5, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. He prefaces this with saying, Look and be astounded. God says, he gives like a warning for what he's about to do. And he says, look and be astounded. Or you could translate it as, be absolutely shocked and utterly amazed. I was trying to think about how to illustrate what it would be to be absolutely shocked and utterly amazed. And kind of what I think of is, imagine that you're in the Philistine army and you've sent out your champion Goliath. 
and you send out your champion Goliath, he's undefeated. He's undefeated. He can't be defeated, but even by a, a normal-sized warrior. And out runs a little shepherd, a small youth, just a teenager. And in a millisecond, he's crippled and decapitated right before your eyes. You would be absolutely shocked, utterly astounded, you would not believe it, even if your own eyes saw it. That's what God is telling Habakkuk. He's prefacing what he's about to say. He's saying, look among the nations, be utterly shocked, totally perplexed, amazed, utterly astounded. What God is going to do, they couldn't have dreamed up in their, in their minds. No man would ever dream it up. Verse 5 continues. I'm going to do a a work in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. Now, I've heard this verse so many times used in the context of like church revival. And it has nothing to do with that. Habakkuk wishes it had to do with that. I promise you. Habakkuk's been crying out, you know, can can you send reform? Can we have a reformation here? Send a prophet. Maybe we can have a prophet come in here. We can have another... A standoff like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and we can cleanse this place. Maybe send us an, another king who will reform this place. And that is not what God has in mind. I'm going to do a work in your day you wouldn't believe even if you were told. God says, I'm at work. And if you remember last week, God's Habakkuk's kind of accusation against God is, why are you idle? Look at verse, verse 3. Why do you idly look at wrong? Like, you're just sitting on your hands. You're not doing anything. God says, I am at work. I'm doing a work in your day. You wouldn't believe it even if you were told. But the solution to your problem is not internal. It's external. Look among the nations. And what are the nations? They're pagans. Look among the nations. Look at the pagans because my answer to your iniquity and immorality and the conditions of your nation is coming from the pagans. And that's what he says. I'm raising up a nation, an external solution to your problem. I'm raising up a nation to judge your evil. Why won't they believe this? That God would raise up a a foreign invader to judge their evil. Because the people of Israel, even though they're idolaters and often abandon their God, they bank on this. They have Abraham as their father. This is what they use in the New Testament when Jesus encounters the Pharisees. We have Abraham as our father. And he's like, no, you really don't. If you did, you do what Abraham did. They have the patriarchs. They've got Moses. They've got the covenants. They've got the promises. And they're banking on this. God's never going to judge what we're doing. He would never destroy us. We have the temple. We're the chosen people. They don't believe what God has said to them. That's the problem. Because God had promised them through the prophet Moses. In Deuteronomy 28, he gave them covenant blessings and covenant cursings. And if they disobeyed God, fall into idolatry, do the, what Habakkuk describes, God promised them that he would judge them. But they don't believe it because they don't believe God's word. They don't believe him. Listen to what God said to the people in Deuteronomy 28, 45 through 51. I'll just read a a smaller portion of it. Through the prophet Moses, he said to the people, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you, 
till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They are a proud people. They are uh, they're religious people. They've mixed even their religion with paganism, but even though they're pagan, they're still believing this. We are the special people. We have the promises. We have the covenant. We have the patriarchs. We have Abraham. And God will never destroy us. He will never judge what we are doing here. So they won't believe in it, even if they are told. Jeremiah, contemporary of Habakkuk, records this in Jeremiah 5, 11 through 12, about these people. He says this, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. So they will not believe even if they're told. But God is at work doing something that is absolutely amazing and astounding. God says, be astounded. I'm raising up a pagan nation to judge you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They were told their identity. In verse 6, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. They march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. The Chaldeans, who are they? Well, this is also an element of why this is surprising and why no one would believe it if they're told. The Chaldeans at the time are no are their nobodies. They're not a superpower. <clears throat> the superpower of the world, the writing of Habakkuk and this prophecy is Assyria. Second, followed by Egypt. The Chaldeans are no one. The Chaldeans, you probably know, have heard it synonymous with the Babylonians, and that's kind of how it's used and it'll be used through this book. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians, but that word in particular draws your attention to their origin. The Chaldeans are the inhabitants of what is now southern Iraq. It's a particular people in that area of Babylon. In southern Iraq, there is a marsh region, and these people come from this marsh region. They're known as the Chaldeans in this greater region of Babylon. They rose up as a counterinsurgency movement because Assyria had occupied what is known as their capital of Babylon. So they started as a counterinsurgency, trying to throw off invaders. They are bitter and angry, and that's how they began, and that's how they stay. <clears throat> it kind of reminded me, this description of their bitterness, their, their ruthlessness because of the, their past of the Kurdish people. When I was deployed, I was stationed in northern Iraq, where the Kurdish people are, and, you know... One of the things that we were doing was trying to stand up uh, an Iraqi army. Well, there's different tribes, right? One of them's the Kurds. And the Kurds have been, for years, mistreated and treated wickedly by Saddam Hussein. And so when they were equipped, right, they were bitter and utterly ruthless, right? If, they can't, if there was, like, even got wind that there's, like, some terrorist, they would, like, kick a dude's door down, drag him in the street, and shoot him. Like, no interrogation. So you had to be, like, careful with them because their bitterness had made them ruthless. And this is the picture of the Chaldeans. 
They're nobody when God tells him this. And no one would believe it. You're going to raise up the Chaldeans. They're going to become the superpower of the world. And they're going to sweep through and judge us and carry us off into captivity. No one would believe that. It's silly. It would be like if God sent a prophet to us in America and said, Americans, God's raising up Poland. You know, that nation that gets invaded all the time. He's raising up, he's raising up Poland. They're going to become the superpower of the world. They're going to conquer Russia. They're going to conquer Germany and all of Europe. And then they're going to decimate the United States. You would never believe it, even if you were told. That's the point of this passage. There is no possible human way the Chaldeans do what they do. God is supernaturally raising up a pagan army. He is raising up and empowering a pagan nation to do what they could never do on their own. They will become the superpower of the world in rapid, quick succession. And they will put an end to Judah's corruption and her idolatry, her child sacrifice, her sexual immorality, her injustice, because God has raised up a pagan nation to do it. Now here are some major lessons for application from this. First, God is sovereign over all nations in history. Could this be any more relevant to our own day and time, that God is sovereign over all nations and peoples in all of history? We see the weakening of our own country, the collapse from within, the moral decline, spiritual decline. Even militarily, our decline because our military pulls from a population who is now morally corrupted. We may be more advanced than ever, but we are, we have a net, we've never been weaker when it comes to our morals and our spirituality and our devotion and dedication to the one true and living God. China is making moves, Russia is on the move. But what does the text remind us? World history is not decided in the White House. World history is not decided by Putin in Moscow or China. History is guided by the sovereign hand of God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel, who was carried off in the Babylonian captivity, wrote this in Daniel 2, 20 through 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God sets up kings. He changes kings. He establishes nations. He tears down nations. This is what Daniel is professing as he's taken away by these people that we are talking about this morning. He isn't just the God of some small tribal people in the Middle East. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. He created all things, and by His will they exist. And He guides the course of human history to His desired ends. And this is a comforting thing. The universe isn't an accident. Things aren't unfolding out of control and spiraling out of control. God isn't a passive passive observer. As surprised as you as what is going on in the world, wishing that he could change things, God is sovereign over it all. 
and in that we can find great comfort. God is sovereign over all nations in history, but also another point of application. God's working is not always perceptible. That's very important to understand today because we may be talking about nations and big things, but there will become times in your life where you are suffering under what we know is the problem of evil. You may have a series of repeated events and your life is really rough. But this text also reminds us that God is working always, but it may not be perceptible to you. We often don't have the ability to see what God is doing. Habakkuk didn't have that ability. No one in Judah guessed what he was doing, but he wasn't idle. He was doing something. Just because you can't see what God is doing doesn't mean he's not doing something. And it doesn't mean he's not working for your best. I believe with all my heart that Romans 8.28 is true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And in our life, that often means God is at work in what we would call the bad things of this world. Suffering and pain. Because the end goal that God has for our life is to conform us into the image of his son. And that often can happen without suffering. And what I know to be true about suffering is when it comes, right, that's not the time to drop verses like, like Romans 8.28 on you. It's beforehand. So that you know beforehand this theology and it's in your heart. That God is always at work for the good of His people. Even this great judgment that's coming upon Judah is in the end for their good. Because God has made a promise to preserve this people until the time of the promised Messiah comes and He blesses all nations of the earth. And God will preserve His promise, even if they have to face severe discipline to stop their idolatry, to chastise them, to bring them to the point where they'll repent and cry out again to God for mercy. God is always at work, whether we're able to perceive His working or not, and He's always at work for our good. God is sovereign over all nations' history. God is always at work, even if we can't perceive it. But also, God always judges evil. It's another great application we have from this text. God always judges evil. The people of Israel and Judah didn't think God would judge them. They didn't didn't think that God would do what He promised that He would do. You see, Judah had become a pagan nation. Judah has become what the Canaanites were before Judah and Israel went in and judged the Canaanites and took the land from them and purged the land of their, of their wickedness and their evil. And God is merciful and patient. This is what we forget. We think, oh, they came out of nowhere. But listen what God, listen to what God tells Abraham when He gives him the covenant promises. And He promises Abraham and his offspring this land. He tells them, you're going to go into Egypt for four generations... In the fourth generation, you'll come out and you'll go into the land. And the explanation is, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the land is occupied by the Amorites and other tribes, the lands of, land of Cana. And God is even patient and merciful with them. So for four generations, God withholds His judgment. Not until the time of their iniquity was complete. And then God sent in a small nation that no one ever would have dreamed up, and he purged the land of their paganism, 
their wickedness, their sexual morality, their child sacrifice. And then he told Israel, don't ever do what the pagan nations did. Or I'll purge the land of you as well. And they don't believe God. But now they have become like the Canaanites. And God is just. And He keeps His promises. And His wrath falls upon the nation. And He purges the land of His people. And this makes me incredibly fearful for our own nation. God always judges evil. And He has a pattern of destroying nations who become like the Canaanites. It makes me incredibly fearful for our nation. We have done tremendous good in the world. We, it could be even argued probably that we may be the greatest nation that has ever existed in all of human history. And I, and I, love, I love our nation. If World War III broke out, not only would I be okay with my son going, and volunteering, you wouldn't have to draft him. But I may have to lose all this 40, 40 pounds and volunteer again. Because I love this country. But we've turned our back on God. We make our own morality. And justice goes forth from us perverted. The rich and the powerful oppress the weak. We have two court systems in this nation. One for the rich and powerful. One for everybody else. We celebrate sexual morality of every kind. We throw it in God's face. And we celebrate child sacrifice of abortion. And God does not change. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And God has shown us this pattern. That He judges nations that do these things. And our only hope is that God would grant us repentance and we can call out to God that He would send a reformation, a revival, that He would grant repentance and that we would turn to God and we would remove all of this evil from our land. Or, if we will not, the pattern of history is that God will remove it from this land. God is merciful, but He is just. And He will by no means clear the guilty. And if we don't repent, we will go the way of the Canaanites. We will go the way of the Israelites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans. God judges wickedness and evil because He's good. God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is astounding. It's utterly astounding. But also God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. Because to fall into the hands of the living God is a fearful and dreadful thing to come under His wrath. And He describes it clearly in verses 7-11. through 11. He describes the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. He describes them Clearly. Verse 11, he says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their military is so powerful that it inspires fear and dread in everyone who even will say the name Babylonian. They will go on to totally decimate Assyria, the superpower of the world. In 6, 
I think it's 612, they will destroy Nineveh, the capital. By 605, Assyria will have to become partners with Egypt, and there will be a great battle at Carchemish, and Assyria will be totally destroyed by the Babylonians. Assyria and Egypt totally decimated by the Babylonians. And now their rise to the superpower of the world complete. They will sweep in over a series of raids and and attacks and totally destroy Judah. They will carry away their people into captivity. They will decimate all the, the walls, the great walls of Jerusalem that protected Jerusalem from the Assyrians. The Assyrians couldn't conquer Jerusalem because of God's divine intervention. God removes His protection and the walls are no match. People will be carried off into captivity. Walls destroyed, city destroyed, temple, mount, absolutely obliterated. They induce fear and dread in everyone. Verse 7 tells us about their morals. Verse 7, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That's Habakkuk's complaint about his own people. He's saying there's no justice here. And justice is everywhere. Justice forth goes forth perverted. And God brings judgment upon the unjust people by bringing in other people that are even more unjust and destroying them in their injustice. Verse 8 describes the might and speed of their cavalry. They move in what, could, what we could only understand would be in football a full blitz Every snap is a full blitz of the entire defense, and they're unstoppable. It's a sack every single time. Their cavalry is as swift as fast leopards, as leopards tracking down prey. And they're as ravenous as evening wolves. And the picture is of a wolf who hasn't eaten for a long time. And it's evening time, and they're on the hunt. And they're ferocious, and they're ravenous, and they're seeking something to devour. They swoop down swiftly like an eagle pouncing upon their prey. Which is, it's no coincidence, this is what God told them in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. Their cavalry is swift and unstoppable. Verse 9 describes them as violent and unrelenting. Their faces are always forward. It carries this idea like there is no retreat in their mind. It's as if they're riding like the desert wind. They're violent, which is how Habakkuk described the people of God as violent people. Well, now a people more violent is coming to judge them. They gather captives like sand. It would be like going to the ocean and picking up a bunch of sand or go into your backyard, into your kid's play place and pick up some sand and let it run through your fingers. That's what the Babylonians do everywhere they go. They just swoop up people and they carry them off as if they're sand. Verse 10 describes their ability to conquer kings and fortresses. Kings laughed at enemies, right? They would sit behind their fortresses and their high walls and they would just laugh at the enemy. Like, I could sit here with all of my resources for five years. You could never, you could never come in here. But God has supernaturally empowered the Babylonians that they laugh at kings. And, and what they do is they take their fortresses by piling up giant earth ramps. Right? Picture this in your mind. You've got these gigantic walls, maybe three or four stories high. And they're like, hey, whatever. We'll just start building a giant earth ramp and you won't stop us. We don't care if it takes us a year. And they'll just start moving dirt 
And they'll pile up the earth until it is made a gigantic ramp and they flood over you like a wave crashing upon the shore and they just completely obliterate your city and they laugh at kings because they do it to whoever they want. They are unstoppable. That's the picture. Verse 11 describes how quickly they move on from one conquest to the next. If you look at your text, they sweep by like the wind and they go on. They don't even stay. They just conquer you and move on. Take your people away. But he also says they're guilty men whose own might is their God. And this will come up again later as God addresses Habakkuk the second time. But they, their own might is their God. What is that which they believe in? Their own ability, their own military power. That's their God. God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is dreadful. Because the fearfulness, the dreadfulness of the Babylonians is a picture of the wrath of God, which is fearful and dreadful. And it shows us one very important truth that is very hard to swallow. Here's your hard to swallow pills. God is sovereign over all nations and peoples, and God is sovereign over evil. Because what are nations composed of? Nations are composed of individuals. God is sovereign even over the evil intentions of individual people. Not that God sins. Because he doesn't sin, he cannot sin, he's perfectly good and just. But evil isn't just running rampant in this world. God is sovereign over evil nations like Babylon. They only do what they do by God's sovereign decree. And if you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he was boasting in his own might of all that he had done. You remember the story? We'll examine it in more detail maybe later in coming weeks. But God strikes him with a mental illness. And when he comes to, he confesses that everything Babylon did, they did because of the sovereign hand of God. That comes off the mouth of a pagan king. God is sovereign over evil nations like Babylon. That may at first seem wrong to you. That God is sovereign over all evil that happens in this world. It may even be terrifying for you to think about it first. That, but think about the, the counter-truth. Think about this counter-truth. If it isn't true, how terrifying is it to live in this world? If evil men can do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want, right? As bad as they want, and there's no limits, there's no restraint... If nations can do whatever they want apart from God's divine decree, how terrifying it would be to live in this world. Anything could happen to any person. Why would you ever pray to God? Right? He's just sitting passively by like you. He's along for the ride too, wishing he could do something, but he can't because he's not really sovereign. That would be utterly terrifying. That would be absolutely terrifying. If God were just as surprised as we are. Let me give you just two quick illustrations to help you 
to digest this truth that God is sovereign over evil, even the evil intentions of individual men, and how it fits into His greater design and decree to bring about good. There are two big stories that help us to really grapple with this. And if you're here with the Problem of Evil uh, series two years ago, then you're familiar with where we're going. Joseph, there's a story in Genesis about a man named Joseph. Now, many of you are familiar with the story, but probably many of you are not. Joseph is the youngest brother, but he is the favored brother of, uh, of, of the covenant people of God. That's important to keep that into context, right? So all of the brothers who make up all of the tribes of Israel, right, they hate Joseph because his parents love him. And it's clear that they love him. He's favored to give him this coat. And he has this dream. This young guy, he has this dream about how one day his brothers are going to bow down to him. And even his parents are going to bow down to him. Like he's some type of ruler. And they hate him so much for it. So one day they devise this plan. And they say, we're going to murder Joseph. Like we can't, we just can't take it how much that he's favored. So they have him exactly where they want him. He comes out one day to deliver to them this message, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, his brothers are shepherds, and they say, all right, this is it. They throw him in a hole in the ground, and they say, all right, we're going to kill him, and we can, uh, we can trick our parents. And, and one of the brothers interjects. He's like, no, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. Like, that's not as bad somehow. And they're like, we'll sell him into slavery, and we'll take his, his clothes, we'll... We'll shred them and put blood on them, and we'll tell our parents he was, he was uh, ravaged by a wild animal. And so that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. And one series of events after the other, this is, his life is nothing but pain and suffering of experiencing the evil that is done to him by numerous people. He gets thrown into jail eventually because his slave master's wife tries to seduce him. When he rejects her, he gets accused of rape. Lied about. So then he gets thrown into jail and he's there for years. And as the story unfolds, what we see is that God uses him and raises him up to become the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He's the right hand man of Pharaoh. He has the power of Pharaoh, he's managing the known world. It's an incredible story of the providence of God and the problem of evil and suffering. And there's this great twist at the end of his life because his brothers have to come to Egypt because there's a famine and they're going to die of starvation. So his father sends the brothers and as the story unfolds, they don't, they don't know who he is. They're, they don't know that's their brother they sold into slavery. And then the big reveal comes. And of course, they're absolutely terrified. Our brother is the most powerful man in the world. He's going to kill us. But he doesn't, right? Because their dad's still alive. But then their father dies. And they say, we're done now. That's the only thing that was keeping him back. But, the, but he doesn't. So they come to him and they're like begging for forgiveness. Forgive us of all the wrong we've done. And he says, you don't have to worry about it. Don't worry about this. Because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That many people would be kept alive as they are today. That's his exact words. God meant it. What's the it? It's all the evil that their brothers did to him. Well, what did God do? He raised up Joseph. Joseph, in his 
divinely inspired wisdom and brilliance creates this strategy of saving money, and he saves the known world from a famine. Joseph saves the covenant people of God. And he did it because his brothers did evil to him. And, and the picture here in Genesis 5, 19-20, if you look at that text, is not that God like made lemonade out of lemons. Like, oh, the Joseph's brothers, they gave God a bunch of lemons when they did evil. And God said, hmm, what could I do with that? The idea is, is that God had decided beforehand a decree. They meant to do it for evil. God meant it for good. God is sovereign over evil. To bring about the good of his people. But the greatest example of this in your entire Bible, it's where your Bible culminates. The greatest example is the crucifixion of Jesus. Evil men did what they wanted to do to Jesus. God didn't take over their brain and make them do what they did. All of the scheming, the political maneuvering, the planning, the premeditating. They did that because they wanted to. And they're accountable for the evil that they did. But over all of it is the sovereignty of God. And they are doing exactly what God had predestined before time would take place. And this is how the apostles preached Jesus. You say, that that doesn't really preach well to get people to become Christians. Well, this is how Peter preaches at the beginning of the church. Listen to what he says. In Acts 2, 23-24, he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, You are morally accountable and will be held to account for the wickedness and evil that you did. You killed Jesus. But it all happened according to the predetermined plan foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign over even evil in this world. And he uses it to bring about the good of his people. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard to swallow, isn't it? If you've never grappled with it before. This is God's, God's answer. God's answer to Habakkuk might not be what he was hoping for, it probably wasn't. He's, it's going to no doubt cause him to have to grapple even more with this problem, as we'll see next week. But God answers. God answers Habakkuk's lament. He's been crying out to God. He finally gets an answer. And we saw that God's answer to Habakkuk's lament was astounding, and God's answer to Habakkuk's lament was dreadful. There is a passage in Isaiah 55, 8-9, which I think fits very well with this, and maybe even well with what we see in the world today, and maybe even down on our small level here with the individual issues that all of us eventually have in life, or maybe even you're going through right now. In Isaiah 55, 8-9, through 9, we read this. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We look around the world and we see and we think the way things should be and we think we know what God should do in our lives. And God says, my thoughts are so much higher than yours you can't even fathom. God's dealing with the interconnected relationship of billions of people on this earth. 
And he has providentially decreed all of that in such a way that we could not even fathom or grasp. And sometimes we get to see behind the veil of him telling us, I do things that you could never dream of, like judging a people with a nation who is even more wicked than themselves. God's ways are not our ways. No one would ever dream up what God did to Judah with the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And I find it very interesting that this passage, the one we just went through, is used by Paul as he preaches at Antioch and Pisidia. He's preaching. I'll just read it to you, and then I'll explain to you, I think, uh, what it clearly means. This is what Paul says as he's preaching to Jew and Gentile. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What he's saying is, Jesus has died, and he has been raised, and he'll free you from your sin. You're a slave to your sin. And the same message is true today. If you, are, if you are not a Christian today, Jesus will forgive you and save you from your sin. This man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through this man, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. You could not, through good works, earn favor with God. That's what he's saying. But through Christ, you can be accepted by God. Then he says this. It's very important that you listen right now. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. He's quoting from our passage. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if you were told. See, what he's doing is he is saying that God has done something astounding, perplexing, beyond the capacity for you to dream up. And don't let it be said of you what was said of that generation that they did not believe God. He says, I just preached to you that you could be freed from sin, that God will forgive you, that He is just, He has judged sin in Jesus Christ, and you can be forgiven. Now, don't let it be said of you that you disbelieved God as they did, because God is just. He punishes sin. And we may think His justness and His wrath, it looks terrible in the Babylonians, but we see it even more clearly in this cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. How dreadful were the Babylonians, but how dreadful is the wrath of God revealed in the cross of Christ, that He would not spare His own Son whom He loved when He took the sins, not His sins, but our sins upon Him, that God did not spare Him, but the wrath of God fell upon Christ. More terrible than an army of 10 billion Babylonians was the wrath of God upon Christ. The crucifixion of Christ is something to look at and be utterly perplexed dumbfounded and astounded over. But don't look like the Israelites who look and don't believe. We are to look at what God has done in Christ, be astounded, because He's done something we would never devise in our minds, that God Himself would be born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. He would live a perfect life for all of us, 
The perfect life that we could never live. Who would dream that God would live a life in our place so that he could have us for himself? He requires perfection, and he knows that we aren't perfect and never will be. So he says, okay, I'll come live the perfect life for you. But even more than that, who would ever dream up that God would die for us? Who are we? We're nothing compared to a perfect and pure and holy God, the creator of all things. We're like ants compared to him. And this is what is astounding, that he loves us enough to die for our sins. It could never be dreamed up. By any man. So we are to look and be astounded that Christ has risen from the dead and he calls sinners like you and me to repent. And if you're here today and you have not, I pray that today is the day that you would look and be astounded. But don't disbelieve, believe. Let's pray.